Well, welcome everyone uh, to Spark Your Fire. Uh, we have a very special guest returning uh, uh, to speak with us today. Um, it is none other than Mr. David Morgan, the author of The Silver Manifesto, an expert on all things commodities, but precious metals in particular. The silver guru himself. Uh, welcome back, David Morgan. Nice to have you. Thank you very much, John. It's good to be back. Good to uh, look, Jazz. Um, how are you doing? Nice to see my my uh, very uh, special co-host there. Good to see you as well there. Uh, good to see you, John. Uh, hi, David. Hi, Jazz. I appreciate your time. Um, and John, I thought you almost forgot me for a second. You're that no. excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're looking forward to a really good chat into all things sort of uh, commodities and um, and precious metals. So much happening in the world today. Uh, and we're going to go deep with David. So uh, looking forward to that. Um, and and I, I was almost going to ask you about Will Smith and uh, and Chris Rock as the biggest news on the planet. But, uh, you, you know, possibly for uh, when we switch the mics off later, uh, maybe we can go there. But what I, what, <laughs> what I did want to ask you, David, um, I want to start with the, the news that's all over the sort of the, the financial press at the moment is that the, the yield curve is inverted. Um, and the yield curve is the, the market's way of telling us, I think, and I'd love your perspective on this, that it doesn't necessarily believe that, that the Fed can continue to raise interest rates. They, they can Maybe they can try to um, dampen inflation in the short term, but they're going to have to reverse course at some stage. What, what, is, the, is the yield curve inversion, the two-year and the 10-year, telling us something about an impending recession or anything else what's your what's your take on that yes i think it's 100 percent accurate i could be wrong i'm pretty certain that it's always indicated a recession uh jim rickards did a great uh promotional piece about it he didn't actually talk about the yield curve inversion but that was what his whole um situation taught was about it's taken place. He knew it would. I knew it would. And it does spell recession. And I think we're probably in one already, uh, although officially we're not. And I do think that um, we're going to see more hardship than perhaps some are thinking. As you don't know, Jazz and John, I start every one of my premium subscriber reports with a quote. And April, a year ago, the quote was from Elliot Janeway, a rather maverick, free-thinking economist, long deceased, but he did think outside the box. And the quote is, the next Great Depression will make the last Great Depression look like a small technical correction, which implies the 1930s Great Depression. Uh, which people starved to death. No one ever talks about that, but it did take place, uh, was a great hardship. And if the next one, and that's his quote, not mine, I quoted him, implies that we're in for some tough times. And I do believe we are. I'm not trying to be a doom gloomer. I don't sell my report based on fear. I <clears throat> sell it based on sound economic principles and ability to, uh, to actually thrive during trying times. But Nonetheless, there is a contraction in the global economy, and the trend is obvious at this point. I think it's going to continue, and again, further probably than what we call a recession. So, sorry, uh, John. Um, one quick question, um, David, over here. 
so we mentioned about the uh, the yield curve that John is talking about is the 10-2 and 10-3 probably. And yes, 10-2 is currently inverted. Um, and out of the 26 recessions, I think it's been um, 20 times it's been accurate. So majority of the times you can call it a pretty good indicator, right? But when you look at the um, three months to 10 years, that is still pretty steep. It's nowhere close to flat or inverted, right? What is your take on, how, how do you compare the two and which one do you think is more accurate? Or let me know if this is not your territory. Well, it is. I used to be pretty good at bond trading, although I don't look at interest rates as much as I used to. I'll take a stab at it. I mean, basically, when you need money now, it's like something in the, in the futures market. If you need it now, you're going to pay a premium to get it. And that's why you get backwardation. Same thing in money. I mean, interest rates are the cost of what we call money or currency. And so if you need it badly, then the three month is going to shoot up as you point out. So that's the best indicator if you really have a tough go. Now it usually corrects and goes back into contango and it could do that on a short to three month rate that you bring it out, but it's a very valid point. And I uh, thank you for the correction. I, my mind was telling me it wasn't hundred percent and I said it, but thanks for the correction. I never said I knew it all, but uh, I got a pretty good grip on the markets. Thank you. Because I think I think the last time the yield curve inverted was was I think about April twenty nineteen, and we all know what happened sort of nine months later. And of course, COVID was a, an exogenous event, but uh, but it did portend, perhaps coincidentally, uh, that that bad stuff was about to happen, and 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 it, so it's a quite a reliable indicator in that sense. Exactly. And just to add on to what I've already said, I mean, at that time, John, we weren't having, you know, this food crisis. We weren't seeing mm. energy spike. I wasn't paying $6 for a gallon of diesel and all these things that we're now presently faced with. And also you see the labor participation rate in the United States being the lowest it's ever been. So, I mean, and you see people, it's not that people don't want jobs, it's that the jobs that are out there, they don't want because they don't pay anything. So, I mean, again, not to harp too hard, on the fact that we are in a declining economic situation that's spiraling out of, out of uh, normalcy into a new era. And this is not just the US of A, this is a global event. And so you compound that with what the interest rates are doing, and you can see a very clear picture that this is probably more than a recession. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the Great Depression before, actually, and, and talking about sort of food shortages. And, and I agree with you on the food shortages. I think, you know, that's, a, that's around the corner. But the interesting thing about the, food, the, the, the Great Depression is that the visual imagery in black and white of people lining up for food around the corner, um, it, it always sort of uh, magnifies the, 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 the visual images of the pain that was going on at the time. I don't think we'll ever see people lining up around the corner because people don't necessarily, uh, we're never sh- short of cash. There's, instead of, instead of um, cash, we have food stamps and th- that sort of stuff. So you'd never need to sort of line up around the corner. But, it, but in a sense, the, we don't have the same visual prompts for pain and hardship as we did back then because people aren't going to necessarily line up around the corner because there's food stamps and all these other things. But actually, th- there's been a lot of pain ever since the, the Great Depression. I hope that that came across, but it's just about the visual uh, images of, of pain and suffering from economics. No, John, I think it's uh, good to point it out. It's been hidden, 
and the powers that be have what we call here EBT cards. So, you know, I use my debit card and there's the gal in front of me and the guy behind me might use an EBT card, but it's all the same standing in line. So you don't get the visual, which kind of hides the problem a little bit. But what they can't hide is what the, we pay for fuel. That's on display every time you go to the pump. And also what you're seeing at the grocery store. And, you know, companies try to hide it at times. I mean, they'll take a cereal box instead of being 16 ounces, they move it down to 12 and charge the same price or whatever. But nonetheless, inflation's here and I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Yep. Yeah, so, um, David, one of the questions that I had with regards to both gold and silver maybe is, um, we have seen the balance sheet obviously go from a trail to 10 trail, roughly nine trail, wherever that is, right? Um, over the last 10 years. And with what you just mentioned before regarding that this depression will probably be a technical blip when, the, when we see the next one come. Uh, hopefully we won't, but if it happens to be. Am I wrong in saying that to some extent, gold has failed as a as a hedge against inflation. I mean, we are talking gold now back at its all-time high, uh, which it had in 2011. And after all this expansion, it has just made its it has just reached its back to its all-time high after 10 years. So technically, the balance sheet or the M2 money supply has. Uh, has times 10 over the last 10 years, but gold has really just gone back to its previous all-time high. So it has technically done nothing. And same goes for silver. Silver's actually been uh, even the worst performer. Um, what is your take on this? Well, first of all, it's a great question. And secondly, it's something that it depends on where you put the starting line. Uh, it used to be, if you looked at the Wall Street Journal, they had massive ads for mutual funds or whatever. Mutual fund uh, manager would put up, you know, if you had invested in April X year until now, you would have this percentage gain. Well, if you put the starting line in a different place, uh, you'd have a different result. So it's the same thing with you. First of all, I, I don't argue facts. So the fact is, if you take the, the dynamic you said the last 10 years, the metals have not performed. However, if we go back to what I like to point out, where gold's job is to preserve your wealth, it's not there really to make you wealthy. It's to make sure that you can, with that ounce of gold, you can buy the same amount of gasoline in you know, 10 years out, 20 years out, 30 years out that you buy today. Same thing with silver, although silver is more of an accelerator than gold. So if we go back to 2000, where the gold market started, and we go till now, 2022, and we look at the last 22 years, Gold has done its job when I put the starting line at the beginning of the bull market. Because what you have from 2000 till now is a CAGR of 10%, meaning a compounded annual growth rate of 10% year over year. Now that's over that 22 year time frame. So you could say, and a different way to think about it, as you pointed out, the high in 2011 is gold got ahead of itself in the first 10 years. And now it's just back and filled for the last decade, which is a long time to wait, no argument. But if you look at it from that 2022 year perspective, it's compounded at nine, or excuse me, 10%. And the shadowstats.com, John Williams 
actual 1980 metric for the CPI is about 9% during that same time frame. So gold has gone a little bit above the compounded inflation rate. That's the true inflation rate using the 1980 metrics. So there's my argument that it's actually doing its job. And yes, it's got a lot of people worn out or scared out or they still don't even care about it. And especially from the perspective that you gave us, Joss. But if you look at it from another 10 years, it's, it tells a different story. Silver certainly lagged, I thought by now, if you told me silver would be 25, you know, in 2022, 10 years ago, I would have taken that bet and who knows, bet a lot and been wrong. However, silver's done about a kegger of about nine, 8.8%. .8%. So it hasn't done as well as gold, but still when I was a teenager and started driving, you would buy a gallon of gas for 25 cents. And when I was a teenager, we were off the silver standard, but we were still didn't have the monetary inflation in the early 70s that we had later in the later 70s. The point I'm making is simply this. <clears throat> We've been off the silver standard for five years. The 25 cents will buy you a gallon of gas. 25 cent, 90% silver coin is worth $6.25 fiat. So that will buy me a gallon of diesel. So it's still doing its job of giving you the same amount of goods and services per unit than it did way back when. But certainly with the amount of printing and all the cross currents that we see, black swans, the uncertainty in the bond market, the credit markets, foreign currency exchange, what's going on in the crypto world, what we see with the war. I mean, all those things compounded, come on, gold should be making a new high in real terms, which you put it in a $3,000 range or something along those lines. Silver should be above its 1980 high of 50. So it's certainly not performing to what I would expect, but as far as trying to be as truthful as possible, they're basically just doing their job, but they should do a lot more. And I think they will in the next uh, two to three years. Does the market fundamentally sort of misunderstand precious metals in general? Like, so, you know, they're, they're supposed to be an inflation hedge, and uh, but, but when interest rates are dropping, gold goes down and when interest rates are going up, gold goes up. Um, like, is it a fair trade? What's the main driver for gold? Is it negative interest rates or, yeah, what, what, what's the There's main? There's arguments all over the place, but, you know, I've studied it my whole life and I'm not afraid to change my mind. I'd say it's an uncertainty hedge. I mean, I can make the argument that it does better in a deflation than an inflation. And that work is the gold right. constant by Professor Roy S. Jastrom. He pretty much proved that. But, you know, we're also that book, you know, on that bookshelf back there is gathering a little bit of dust. In other words, we've had a, a different modality. It's basically mistrust of government and uncertainty. It's a hedge against the future as far as what money is going to be or what government's ability to rule over us is going to be. It's the most trusted money in the world forever. It's the monetary hitching post of the universe. There's nothing other than gold that humanity has voted. There's two theories of money. It's commodity money, basically gold and silver, or you can have what's called the legal action money, which means that money is whatever we say it is, we back it up by force. And therefore this piece of paper that has no intrinsic value is money because we say so. And if you disagree with this, you know, here's a gun at your head. I'm using that as a metaphor, but you know what I, what I say, what I mean is that you must use it in your transactions to settle debt, pay your taxes, you know, pay off your student loan, et cetera. So the real money, 
that's always gone is gold and silver. Neither one of them have ever failed in 5,000 years. But every fiat that's ever been tried has failed. And we're in the failing of the global economic system money-wise, which is the U.S. dollar. Yeah, did you have a, a question there? No, no, it's fine. Cool. So uh, you, you, right, you, you've sort of, uh, the, the failing of the, the, the system and, and of, you know, the fiat currencies is, is something where I think it takes us to Russia, Ukraine. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that because I think that, you know, I find that I'm very fascinated by what's happening over there. So, so I want to maybe set up a question and build it, build a bit of a case, but um, I, Obviously, invading a sovereign country is is terrible. It's wrong. I don't agree with it at all. But I, I'm not sure that – I wonder if the real attack is on the Ukraine or if the real attack is on the US dollar. I'm My guess is that Putin um, anticipated that the West's response that were going to be sanctions. And part of those sanctions is blocking the third biggest energy producer from the US dollar system, the petrodollar system. Is what's the significance of the Russia-Ukraine um, uh, uh, war on commodities and on gold, and on in particular the U.S. dollar? Well, John, I tend to agree with you. Obviously, I don't know. I spent a lot of time writing well, two months ago the report which dealt with uh, what you just outlined. I started off that month's quote with all wars are bankers wars. And I said <laughs> yeah. bankers usually win no matter if they fund both sides. So you might bear that in mind, but I think it's more financial than it is territorial. Mm. And I think the question I'll anticipate is, you know, Russia said that we're putting a price on gold at 5,000 rubles per gram. And they did that on the 25th of March. And I think the math on that put it under the spot price by about 100 bucks. And then um, the ruble strengthened and it brought the uh, 5,000 rubles per gram up to basically the world price of gold or very close to it. The misunderstanding is that they're forcing the EU, Germany, whoever buys gas from their gas or oil is required to pay in rubles or gold. And that's not the case. The case is that they, they, the Europeans can buy in the Euro. They could use rubles, of course, and they probably could use gold, but it's not the requirement. So right now they're still paying for their gas and oil in Euros. And what's happening is the main banking system is taking that foreign exchange and taking those euros and converting them to rubles, which is putting a foreign exchange pressure on the ruble to strengthen it. Because like anything that works properly in this wackadoodle world, it's supposed to be supply and demand. So if you have a lot of demand for rubles, then the price is gonna go up. And that's what's taking place. Now, I wanna add on to that because most people are under the impression in this genre, gold silver space, that Russia has basically said, we're on a gold standard. If you don't pay us in gold, you're not going to get gas. That is not the case yet. Now, whether or not they do that or not is yet to be determined, but I can't rule that out of my thinking that um, the powers that be in Russia, in my opinion, are pretty smart. And they know they're going to get pushback. And they know the Europeans are going to say, wait a minute, you're breaching the contract. Our contract is we can pay euros for oil from you 
and you cannot change that contract. But when is that contract up and when does it do? Or what if you pay in gold and you get a discount? Or what if you pay in gold and you get delivery at a different timeline or something? I mean, all I'm suggesting is that it's not as much of a stab at the financial system as some are, are talking about at this time, but it has the potential to become extremely dramatic if and only if we go to a de facto gold standard, but we're not there yet. There was there was a Credit Suisse article a couple of weeks ago, which we covered on this podcast, and it was not to get too specific to draw you into something too specific, but um, th- th- this this article was sort of talking about this difference between insider money, which is fiat money, the you know. Uh, the money that, you know, the US dollar system that we use uh, if we're all behaving ourselves and commodity money, outsider money. Um, Could could this create a um, uh, increased demand for non-US dollar, non-fiat commodity money? It is. I think it's already started. I did an interview with some friends in Australia about two weeks ago and from the input that they gave me and others, I think the run to gold has started. And I use the metaphor, the run to gold is, you know, there's no fever like gold fever. And the fact that gold is the international payment system of last resort. And if you wanted to demand gold only payments, it certainly could be done. You really can't break the contracts you've already made or you shouldn't. But, you know, the U.S. broke the contract with Russia that we're not going to go any further. We're not going to put NATO in. Uh, any other countries and all that, and uh, the U.S. breached that contract. So I'm not, not in favor of anyone breaching a contract. All I'm pointing out is it plays both sides. So the idea is that we could see more and more uh, banks, central banks, coming into the gold market. They've already been net buyers since 2011. And we also know that Russia and China both have a great deal of gold. And China... <clears throat> has probably got a lot more than they state. Russia probably has more than they state. The United States has a statement of what they have, but yet they've never audited it since 1950. So if you look at how the world affairs rotate on money, the old adage that he who owns the gold makes the rules, it was true. The British Empire owned most of the gold and they made the rules for a long time. The sun never set on the British Empire. Then during the war, Basically, the gold drain came and pushed all the real money, gold, into the United States. Britain was waning, U.S. waxing. The gold was centered in the U.S. The U.S. became the power capital of monetary affairs for the world. It lasted from basically Bretton Woods up until basically right now. And now where's the gold shifted to? China. So it gives you a pretty good idea of what the outcome is going to look like in the future. If you follow the gold, you can follow the power. So we came off the gold standard back in 1970s or whenever that happened, um, David. Um, everything you said that I completely agree with, right? But it's hard to digest and believe that what actually ever go back to the gold standard is it going to be more like uh, is 
is this going is this time going to be different in in terms of rather than just currency being backed by gold it could be backed by multiple things and that could be like commodities which is what uh, we were talking before or um other precious metals or crypto uh rather than just being gold itself well that's a great question and i've dove rather deep on that topic and i wrote about that in the premium service some time ago it's very clear what the bankers want they want a cashless system they want a central bank digital currency they want modern money theory and they want it completely unbacked so what the bankers want this came mostly from mark carney but all the bankers pretty much agree He gave a speech that said that. He gave it at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, with the Fed meets. He did it in front of the UN, and he did it, I think, in London. So he gave basically the same speech, more or less, three different places, all elites, all bankers, and all this is what we want. So that's what they're shooting for. Absolutely no backing whatsoever. However, if that were to fail, or if while they're getting to that point, they realize that they've lost all credit, And the only way to build back confidence in the system that's failed or failing or failing rapidly and they have to act, they could introduce gold or a basket of currencies or some other commodities to give confidence to the system. My thoughts are still, even as things continue to this point in time, that they will go with an unbacked central bank digital currency and that um, that will probably work. You got to remember that only 1% of the financial assets of the world are in gold. And so 99% plus is outside of the gold realm. So if you doubled the price of gold or doubled the amount of people interested or buying physical gold, that would still only represent 2%. Now that would take the paper price of gold far higher, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that gold would have to be reintroduced in the financial system or the monetary system. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the paper market in general? Do you see any risk involved over there with the overall situation that's going on with Russia, Ukraine, and countries trying to build up their gold reserves? Russia has obviously been regularly, pu- regularly publishing about their gold reserves. China um, has been to some extent. um what how, how do you see the paper market evolving for for precious metals well, i think it's a mess i think it's uh i think it's unfathomable about what's really really going on in the paper markets my take is first of all russia was very very precise about stating not only what the gold position they have is but all of that gold was on their soil Now, that was a subtlety that went over the heads of most people, but it didn't go over my head because what they're really saying is it's someone that might be a sovereign state like, let's say, Venezuela and has gold at the LBMA and says, we want our gold back. Here's our piece of paper. You've got my gold. Send it. Oh, no, no, no. We can't send it. You're a nasty country. You're a whatever. So the old idea that, um, you know, Possession is nine-tenths of the law, meaning it might be your gold on paper, but try and get it out of the LBMA or try to get it out of a COMEX vault or try to get it out of a certain you know, place. 
So I think it's a mess. And I think that as things unravel more and more, the ability for people that hold certificates on the international sovereign state level are in trouble. And I think that carries all the way down to the lonely investor that has put money into the silver market at a major bank that gets a statement every week or excuse me, every month and is convinced that they own that silver and they do on paper. But if they turn that paper in for physical silver, it's not gonna happen. Now, is that every case? Of course not. My point is the mess is that it's been hypothecated, rehypothecated, and for every ounce that's on paper, there is far more than that, far, far more paper ounces for both gold and silver than there is physical to back it up. And this is a huge problem and it's an absolute mess, but hardly anyone ever talks about it in those terms. They talk about how many contracts are, what the flow is with the commitment of traders. And I pay attention to that, but that's what the market is. The market is a paper market. What I'm talking about is everyone that thinks that they own gold and maybe do, but they don't have gold in their possession, then that's a problem. And just to go one step further, I'm sorry if I'm harping, but it's extremely important that investors understand this at all levels. I mean, even international bankers that don't pay attention to this ought to wake up and hear me. And that is that if you don't own it, you don't touch it, you don't have it. And that goes back to this book that I've talked about several times called The Ownership Theory of Money. And the ownership, this is the reinstitution of money. Money, that's gold and silver. Doesn't have to be. If you make a legal contract and everybody agrees by force, we could have you know, legal money. Point being that ownership. So if you've got funds in a bank in the United States and you have them as an unsecured creditor, meaning if there's a bail-in, which is at law and has been since uh, for a long time, you could get your funds that you think are yours taken away from you. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it because the bank, it's their property. Now, you could take that same idea into the gold and silver markets, although it's not legally that clear or it isn't stated legally like it is at the bank. But the idea is the same, that they cannot produce something from nothing. So if they have more receipts out for gold and silver than exist in reality, we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. That ties a bit into what your good friend Mike Maloney says uh, just with the d distinction between uh, currency and money. He, he always um, says, you know, uh, money is the, the gold in the vault and, uh, and everything else is, is, is a derivative of, of money, a currency. Um, I, I want... I wanted to ask um, on the Russia-Ukraine, uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine war. We we talked about wars, you know, likely being bankers' wars, and we talked about the recovery of the ruble. Uh, who's winning? Who's winning? Whoa! All right. Well, I'll take a stab at that. <laughs> I think Russia's winning. The reason being is that first of all, the Russian people are very tough, and they know what it's like to stand in line to get bread. So I think that uh, they're a hardier, I won't say race, but a hardier uh, society than the overfed, the overfed and undernourished Americans. Also, the sanctions are shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, the things you need the most are energy and food. 
and you know Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Uh, you've got energy that's in excess in Russia. That's why they can export. So they're not in this world of hurt because the U.S. put on these sanctions. And there's a ways. There are ways around sanctions. I mean, you know, a free market is often called a black market in times like these. But uh, money flows where it's needed or wanted. It has a mind of its own, so to speak. So you could see that um, it wouldn't be the same as international trade before the sanctions. I'm not saying that. But you could see things not as uh, exactly the way the powers that be will advertise to us with their propaganda press telling us who's winning and who isn't and what's taking place. It's really difficult these days to get facts out of the mainstream. And the alternative press is almost as guilty as the mainstream press because they like to get clicks, so they'll just pull stuff out of the air. So it's really tough, you know, someone that's really tries to be uh, as factual as possible, there are no facts to be found. You don't really want to extrapolate too much, but you can make some pretty sound judgments based on not exaggerating and taking a look that whatever information input you get, you gotta look at both sides and you know, maybe you know, way in between. And that's not an exact science. Obviously, none of this is. But I really think that there's more to this than just the war. As you said, John, is this really about the financial reset? Yes, it is. The question I still have for myself is, is this orchestrated? Or is Putin really going against the international banking cartel? And I have to remain open-minded and say that is a possibility. It's a less likely possibility, but it is a possibility. So <clears throat> just being careful of time, uh, guys over here. Um, with all the things discussed, David, um, now going into a little bit of a technical world, if we look at the gold technical charts, um, for the last 10 years, it's been completing its formation, so-called cup and handle, right? Um, that's complete. And with what's going around in the world, there's enough bullish news for gold to make a move higher. Also, when you look at some of the latest numbers, and these were, I think, only released yesterday, US Mint saw its strongest gold bullion demand in 23 years. Um, I think it was 426K ounces in Q1. Um, so everything points to a bullish narrative, right? Now, whether narrative will meet the reality or not to be seen, but what is your target on gold this year, considering everything that we have discussed and also looking at the technical chart patterns and the sales volume and all that stuff? Well, technically, there's nothing more powerful than a cup and handle. Anytime it takes that many years to do it, it's more powerful. In other words, if it's a cup and handle of a year, it's powerful. But a cup and handle of four years would be not four times more powerful, but it is more powerful. You've got a 10-year cup and handle in gold. You have a 50-year cup and handle in silver. So once these break their, their handles then the sky could be the limit. It goes back to what I said earlier, that bears repeating and bear in mind, people, the run to gold has started. You just said it uh, inadvertently or, or consciously, either one. 
that the mint has produced, you know, the highest level of gold purchases in 23 years. What does that say? It says the run to gold has started based on that one data point. Well, come on, David. No, that's a data point. The fact that in Australia, they've had the biggest increase in gold demand from on the retail side they've ever had in, you know, 20 years of business. And they're the second largest dealer in Australia. Uh, what I hear from the hedge fund managers, what I hear from the refiners, what I hear from the bullion dealers, everybody is throwing gold out the door as fast as they can because the demand is so darn high. So we're at the run to gold. We've started a walk. It's going to be a fast walk. Then it's going to be a jog. Then it's going to be a skip. Then it's going to be a run. Then it's going to be an all-out sprint. And once we get to the real run to gold, which could be another year, two or three out, I think it's more like year and a half, we are going to see higher gold prices. Will gold get ahead of itself? It may, like it did from 2000 to 2011, but this time it'd be short-lived, meaning let's take some numbers. Let's say gold gets to 2,200 an ounce within the next four or five months due to all these factors. And then the war goes away. Uh, there's a settlement. Uh, Russia gets certain areas of Ukraine. Ukraine says we're going to remain sovereign. We're not going to put NATO into Ukraine. Everybody's happy. You'd probably see the gold price sell off, maybe a couple hundred dollars. But that doesn't mitigate the long-term financial problems that the world has, which means that that sell-off would be temporary and we still go higher. Just one last question, David. Do you see the current environment to be current environment to be stagflationary? If yes, how is gold supposed to perform in that environment? I mean, I know the answer, but just relating it to the stagflation, more or less. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think that's probably the most accurate. I mean, with stagflation, you have increasing prices in certain areas. You have lower productivity. You have a wage press, meaning the wages aren't keeping up with necessities. And it just kind of meanders on sideways, <clears throat> the economy. And if that's the case, and that's probably the most accurate description, what does gold do? Well, gold does whatever you don't expect it to do. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be funny. But in a stagflation, you would expect it to kind of just meander along with the economy. But I don't think that's the case because you know, what is the main impetus of gold? And the main impetus is money of last resort, security. And this is where we go back to your question about the paper markets. So as sovereign nations need to perhaps trade in gold on the, let's say the black market. In other words, there's no wheat available, but under the table, there's wheat available if you settle in gold. But Venezuela has its gold at the LBMA but they can't get it because they only have a piece of paper. So you see where I'm going with this? I think the demand for gold will be both overt and covert, meaning that you'll see what you see in the financial press all about gold, which is mostly propaganda, just like what you see in the mainstream press about any other subject. Then you have the real press, people like me that write on the topic that know what's going on in some cases. Some people make stuff up, but um, to the best of our abilities, most of us, you know, shoot straight on that. And you may see what I just outlined. So gold is the money of last resort. It's the, you know, think of it as, you know, paying off the border guards. We've all heard that expression. We've got to leave Ukraine. 
you get to the border and you give them a gold coin or two and you get your family across. That's what happens. That is a metaphor on a larger scale for if things really get tough and you're Russia and you've got excess gas and oil reserves. And even though you have to accept euros, but someone under the table calls you up and says, hey, I'll ship you gold at this rate. Who do you think is going to get it? Mm -hmm. David, it's, it's been fantastic having you back. We're, we're going to have to leave it there due to time, but uh, we, we've thoroughly enjoyed this uh, the con this conversation. To the listeners, if you haven't read The Silver Manifesto, you, you should. Uh, David, if people want to follow your work, how would they? How do they find you? The best thing is go to our main landing page. Just go to valmorganreport.com. Get on your mailing list. I'm not sure how long I'll be on YouTube. I am on alternative channels. I'm on Odyssey and Library and a few more, my webmaster handles all that stuff. But if you're on the mailing list, then you can always get an email from us and we can direct you to wherever, you know, I'm doing public domain stuff. And then if you're inclined to leverage in the resource sector, and we're looking at a lot more than gold and silver, although primarily right now, we're mostly gold, silver, uranium, a technology stock. And um, well, we've talked a lot about copper as well. And that's pretty much what we're focused on presently. So those are all um, our ideas on investing in the resource sector in the premium service. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, for, for listeners, um, on behalf of Jazz and myself, we wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in. Obviously, this isn't financial advice, but um, uh, but but there's uh, pearls of wisdom uh, uh, all throughout. So we really appreciate it. Uh, if you like what we're doing here, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. And we look forward to seeing you on the pod. Uh, pod. Uh, David, we look forward to having you back again. Thank you for having me.